Good morning. Welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study for May 24th, 2020. Today with, uh, with Bob Reese, uh, Brother Robert Reese speaking to us or teaching us. Um, we will begin today with an opening song, Anthem to My King by Octopella. And then the opening prayer will be by Rosalind Collings Eves. Rosalind is a uh, assistant professor of English at Southern Utah University and the author of a best-selling series, Blood Rose Rebellion. We are grateful for everybody who is participating today. Our dear Father in heaven, we are grateful to thee for this beautiful Sabbath that and for the technology that allows us to come together this morning. We ask thee to please be with Brother Reese that he might give the lesson as he has envisioned it and bless us that we might be edified and inspired and uplifted together. We also ask thy blessing on all of those of thy children who are suffering at this time. Bless them that they might find comfort and bless us that we might find ways to be the instrument of helping them. And we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, and by way of introduction, uh, first I'd like to give my, our, our regular disclaimer that we are, we are excited and enthusiastic about Bob Reese with us today. And, but, but I want to be clear that we have not asked Bob to uh, represent dialogue, although he might be very capable of doing that. We've not asked him to represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or to speak for anybody but himself. Uh, this is, as, as always the case with these Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study experiences, this is um, an invitation for uh, Brother Reese's voice as he has envisioned these uh, portions of the scripture and, uh, and learnings of his lifetime. Um, Bob Reese is former editor of Dialogue, a visiting professor and director of Mormon studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Previously, he taught at UCLA, at UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley, and was a Fulbright professor of American studies in the Baltics. He is the author or editor of numerous studies, including The Reader's Book of Mormon, co-edited with Gene England, and Why I Stay, The Challenges of Discipleship for Contemporary Mormons. His just-completed study, A New Witness to the World, Reading and Rereading the Book of Mormon, is forthcoming from BCC Press. Reese is co-founder and current vice president of the Bountiful Children's Foundation, a nonprofit that addresses malnutrition among Latter-day Saints and other children. Uh, Bob, the floor is yours. Thank you, Christian. Uh, for those of you who have seen my photograph on Facebook, you can see that this morning, like a Abinadi, I've come among you in disguise, but you know me not. I'd like to begin by expressing my indebtedness to three generations of Latter-day Saint scholars who have taken a serious look at the, the, who, who've taken this serious book seriously and whose deep study and reflection have informed and inspired my own study. I can't name them all, so I'll just mention three who were my teachers 
and mentors when I first started reading and thinking about the Book of Mormon, Robert Thomas, Hugh Nibley, and Truman Madsen. I would also like to thank my wife, Gloria, for her good and deep insights into scripture that inform our personal devotions. Since Adam Miller began his lessons a couple of weeks ago with the Billy Collins poem, I feel emboldened to begin mine with one as well. Collins' introduction to poetry, which might also be called introduction to scripture, goes like this. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear inside against its hive. I say, bump a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving to the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. What the Book of Mormon really means is our joyful work of discovery. I love the image of the text as a hive with all of those words, ideas, and images buzzing around inside the text, and hopefully also buzzing around inside our hearts and our heads, making the work of God, the word of God, as sweet as honey. According to tradition, the first formal instruction to scripture for young children in Jesus' day was called the Bet Sefer, the house of the book, which is also, of course, the heart. At the ages of six to 12, Jewish children began their formal education, both boys and girls, by attending the synagogue school where they learned to read and write. The textbook was the Torah, and the goal was not just to read, but to memorize the sacred text. Can you imagine what this would have been like? As a child of six, you would go to the synagogue, and the most respected man in the city would greet you with a slate. And on that slate, he had put a dollop of honey. And then he would remove the ancient scroll of the Torah. As you sat in awe, the rabbi would tell you to taste the honey on your slate. And then he would tell you that the Torah is sweeter than honeycomb. It's delightful to think of Jesus going to the synagogue at this young age and having the experience of tasting honey and associating it with the word of the Torah. It's also pleasant to speculate that that childhood memory came back to him when he tasted honey on visiting the disciples following his resurrection. Notice how Luke immediately shows Jesus associating the taste of honey on that occasion with the Torah and the Psalms, quote, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, these are the words which I say unto you while I, I spake unto you while I was yet, yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me, then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. In the material I sent up for, for you today, I ask, what does the Jewish mother say to her daughter when she comes home from Hebrew school 
one person responded. She asked, is that any way to talk to your mother? <laughs> but the question, what does she ask, is a good one. I begin each new season of when I teach what we used to call do gospel doctrine class with that question. And invariably, Latter-day Saints say, she asks, what did you learn today? And I say, no, what she says is, did you ask good questions? We Latter-day Saints are much more comfortable at giving answers than asking questions. And yet, we only learn something new when we question, probe, and ponder. My second question was, why do we study the scriptures? I'll give my full answer later, but one good answer is, we study the scriptures so we will know better how to study the scriptures. Much of our usual scripture study is devoted to confirming our beliefs rather than expanding our knowledge and deepening our devotion. We should be reading the scriptures in order to hear better, see further, think deeper, and most important of all, how to love more fully. In other words, how to become better disciples. I began this, this uh, discussion with an illustration by contemporary Latter-day Saint, Latter Saint artist Jose Tefario called The Fullness of the Gospel. It's a marvelous illustration of how we are to study the gospel. Look at the profusion, even plenitude of compasses, maps, and charts, which symbolize the resources, explorations, imaginations, insights, and intuitions that lead us to see deeper into the text and that allow us to make con connections, to see patterns, and to receive insights and revelations that open and unfold the text. It's as if in studying the lives of these transplanted peoples, their world comes alive. As Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said upon reading Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, as I read, I hear the crowing of a cock, I hear the note of lark and linnet, and from every page rise odors of plowed field and flowery mead. We may not often get such vivid sensual experiences in reading the Book of Mormon, but what we do get helps us to come alive in Christ. There's so much rich material in scriptures we had for today that we could spend a week on them. Before we turn to what I consider the most important material, let me highlight several questions to ponder in our further study or in our family study. One thing that occurs to me is that if he were an intent on perpetuating a fraud in writing the Book of Mormon, as some accuse Joseph Smith of doing, why in the world would he compose such a complex, convoluted, and at times confusing narrative? In these chapters, we have Alma and his followers who have escaped from Noah, fleeing to Zarahemla, and to the people of Mosiah. We have the records of the people of Zenith who left and then returned to Zarahemla. We have the record of the Jaredites as discovered by the Mulekites and then the Lamanites. And yet somehow all of this can be unraveled. The question I ask is who really raveled it in the first place? Also these chapters introduce us to a new form of government among the Book of Mormon peoples. Why is this significant and how does it change the trajectory of history? What are the advantages and disadvantages of each? In both Mosiah and Alma's time and in ours, leaders faced a crisis relating to the rising generation. What can we learn about how they approach their crisis that, we, that might more effectively help us address ours? 
because my dear brothers and sisters addressing that crisis among our younger members is one of our great colleagues another question is how Alma the Younger and St. Paul are alike and how they differ. And why is this the determiner all used so frequently in the Book of Mormon? You see certain passages in which you find all, 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 all. What are we to make of that? What is significant about the different records that Mosiah gathers and entrusts to Alma? The place of brass, the place of Nephi, the place of gold, and quote, all the records and all the things which he had kept including the interpreters. Before proceeding further, I want to share an important insight I received several months ago in finishing my book on the Book of Mormon. Despite more than six decades of reading, I had not understood until recently that from beginning to end, from Lehi's and Nephi's dreams to Moroni's last words, inviting us to come into Christ, central focus the governing principle and the paramount message of the Book of Mormon is the importance of love. For the human characters in the book, it's about the offering and the refusing of love, the persistence and the resistance to love, the abundance and the absence of love, the joy and the suffering of love. For the divine beings in the book, it's the unconditional gift of love, the generosity of grace of love, the patience, long-suffering, and cost of love, and the unqualified endurance of love. In the chapters for this week, we see the following, the long-suffering of the love of Mosiah and Alma for their sons, the love of the members of the church for these wayward sons, which is seen in their willingness to fast and pray for them for two days and two nights. We see the love of Alma and following his conversion, the love of Alma the Younger for the church. We see the love of the sons of Mosiah for the Lamanites. And we see the love of God the Father. And even though she's absent from this narrative, Fiona's lesson last week emboldens me to declare by the logic of truth being wisdom that we also see the love of our Heavenly Mother in these pages. And we see the love of Jesus Christ for Alma and the sons of Mosiah in this miraculous experience they have. And for the Nephites, Lamanites, Mulekites, and for all of the other peoples of the book, and for all of us. In other words, love abounds in these chapters, as it does throughout the Book of Mormon. If we were all together today in an actual classroom, I would begin, as I often do, with my lessons on poetry, novels, plays, and art by asking, what's the most important word, phrase, sentence, or image in these chapters? It's a fun exercise because usually there isn't a clear or an easy answer and it's kind of fun to see what people find. As I asked that question about these four chapters, I came to this conclusion. The most important sentence found in Mosiah 25 is found in Mosiah 25 and 30 where Jesus says this, yea, as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. If the Book of Mormon didn't convey any other lesson 
than is contained in this one sentence, it would still be a marvelous work and a wonder. Why do I say this? Because 200 years ago, when Joseph Smith walked into the woods, almost everyone in the Christian world believed in the capriciousness of God's grace and also believed that the majority of humankind was condemned to an eternal burning hell. Everything in the Book of Mormon falls to less importance in relation to this amazing promise of grace. Let me repeat it. Yea, as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. It is the context in which that promise is given and fulfilled that I wish to focus our attention today in the dramatic conversion of Alma the Younger and the Sons of Mosiah. This episode is preceded by a remarkable declaration by the Lord to Alma's father, as recounted in Mosiah 26. What a great leader Alma is. Instead of just making a decision out of concern that he might be making, misusing or abusing his authority as a leader of the, of the church, Alma prays for guidance, pouring out his whole soul to God. And God's answer comes in the form of a beautiful beatitude. He says, blessed are thou, Alma, and blessed are they who were baptized in the waters of Mormon. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant Abinadi. And blessed are they because their exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. And blessed art thou because thou hast established the church among this people, and they shall be established, and they shall be my people. And blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name, for in my name shall they be called, and they are mine. And because thou hast inquired of me concerning the transgressor, thou art blessed. A wonderful example of, of biblical repetition, the multiplication of blessed seven times, emphasizes God's eagerness to bestow abundant blessings on us all. The extent of Alma being blessed is God's immediate promise. Quote, thou art my servant and I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life. What greater promise or gift is, that? is there than that? Let us turn now to the story of the conversion of Alma and the sons of Mosiah. The scene for this dramatic episode is set earlier in the chapter on which we are, in which we are told that Alma and the sons of Mosiah, quote, were numbered among the unbelievers. Alma stands out as very wicked and idolat a very wicked and idolatrous man, a man of many words who led many of the people to do after the manner of iniquities. Iniquities is really a powerful plural. We usually just think of iniquity, but here what Alma has done qualifies to be iniquities. These young men were a threat because they sought to destroy the church and to lead astray the people of the Lord. Excuse me. The response to the prayers of their fathers, and we say with absolute confidence, the prayers of their mothers. In response, the Lord sent an angel to comfort these wayward sons. The angel appears to Alma and the sons of Mosiah in this painting uh, and by Jorge Cocos Sant'Angelo. I use it because I think it, it helps us to see this episode in a dramatic way. 
the angel came as angels are sometimes wont to do with a voice of thunder. It's so powerful it shakes the earth beneath a sinner's feet. The angel singles out Alma for condemnation and calls him to repentance. It's interesting that his address mentions captivity, one of the recurring motifs of Israelite history and one of the recurrent themes of the Book of Mormon. Go, he says, and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of, of Helam, in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things God has done for them, for they were in bondage and he delivered them. Alma and the sons of Mosiah indeed are in bondage, and the angel wants him to remember the Lord's liberating love that can set them free. I wondered as I read this why Mormon was so taken with his story. He includes four different versions of Alma's conversion, here in Alma 26, in Alma 36, and in Alma 38. For Grant and Heather Hardy, Mormon's reasons for these multiple tellings is threefold historical specificity, spiritual immediacy, and literary quality, all valid. I add two more. First, Mormon seems so impressed with Alma as the compilers of, as the compilers of the New Testament were with Paul. Both were great figures, were figures of great intellect, courage, leadership, persuasive skill, and spiritual power. So towering a figure as Alma, that the next period of Book of Mormon history, to use Emerson's word, is his lengthened shadow. The other reason I believe Mormon includes so many accounts of Alma's conversion is that he sees Alma as an archetypal figure, and therefore a powerful symbol in the cycle of grave rebellion, anguished repentance, and joyful redemption. He is a kind of every man or every saint to which parents and prophets can point. If a sinner of Alma's wickedness and rebellion can repent and change his life or her life, then anyone should be able to. As Christ's love and mercy can reach into the depths of hell and rescue and redeem a sinner such as Alma, then there's a hope for everyone. Notice Alma's language from the gall of bitterness, the bonds of iniquity, the darkest abyss in which he is racked with eternal torment, he declares that he is snatched by Christ. What a powerful and interesting word. The meaning from the 15th century is to lay hold on suddenly, and especially to take from someone's hands, with the implication that to rescue, is, is doing so is to rescue quickly. I believe that Alma intends to convey to us at the very moment of his impending destruction, Christ snatched him from the hands of Satan in the jaws of hell. Mormon must have understood the power of a, of a narrative which shows such a dramatic shift from a person who rejected his redeemer and denied the gospel to one who through the love of Christ is able to sing the song of redeeming love and to sing it with such fervor as to challenge and inspire others to sing it as well, including us living at this time for which the Book of Mormon was written. That allows me to conclude by segueing to something I believe the Book of Mormon is saying to those of us living during this 21st century, divided as we are, unequal, warring in this COVID-19 reality. 
in which a growing number of people far and near now need and increasingly will need our love and our charity. The baptismal covenants made in these chapters reminds us of King Benjamin's address and his radical teaching, one that I think escapes many Latter-day Saints, his radical teaching that the way we retain a remission of our sins from day to day is, quote, by feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants, end of quote. In other words, our spiritual redemption is connected to our assisting in the material and spiritual salvation of those most in need, those we are called by Jesus to serve. As Elder Jeffrey Holland said in last April's conference, quote, when we have conquered this virus, and we will, may we be equally committed to freeing the world from the virus of hunger, freeing neighbors and nations from the virus of poverty. May we hope for schools where students are taught the gift of personal dignity for every child of God, unmarred by any form of racial, ethnic, or religious prejudice. And girding all of this is our relentless hope for a greater devotion to the two greatest of all commandments, to love God by keeping his counsel and to love our neighbors by showing kindness and compassion, patience and forgiveness. These two divine directives, Elder Holland said, are still and forever will be the only real hope we have for giving our children a better world than they won, than the one they now know. Sometimes, as with Alma and his companions, God sends angels to remind us of these great commandments. These two commandments, by the way, include a very important third one. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, which means we are commanded by him to love ourselves. And we can't really love God or others unless we do. So any of you out there who doubt that you are lovable. Jesus says you are and asks us to tell you that you are. God sent angels to the, in the beginning to Adam and Eve, and he has sent them throughout history to announce, warn, teach, and comfort his children. Those angels were sent to Abraham, Elijah, Nephi, Alma, Mary, Paul, Joseph Smith, and others. And they were also sent to us. They are also our messengers of truth, grace, and love. As country singer Kathy Matea puts it, God keeps sending us angels. I walked down to the river and stood on the shore. Seems like, seems like the devil's always trying to get in my door. Just when I thought I couldn't take any more, he keeps sending me angels from up on high. He keeps sending me angels to teach me to fly, to stand on this mountain, face the wind, amazed at the number of times we've all sinned and the countless enemies that should have been our friends. Oh, here he comes again. He keeps sending me angels. Here they come a-flying. He keeps sending me angels to keep me from crying. Some say it's coming. I say it's already here. The love that's among us to the joy and the fear. And when I look into your eyes, everything is so clear, my friend. 
here he comes again. He keeps sending me angels, sweet and true. Keep sending me angels, just like you. Even if we are all somehow fallen angels, or in Iris DeMent's words, infamous angels, we can still be angels to one another, because as she also sings, our destination is home. This is a place we can pause if we, we have a few minutes, if any questions uh, have been asked uh, in your uh, chat. Uh, Christian, I turn the time to you for a minute. Come. I haven't seen questions yet. Uh, okay. Well, we can we can we go on. Appreciation, um, but not questions yet. Okay. Um, okay. So, coming back to what we just said about God sending angels. Um, Bob, let me. I, I will interject here. Um, okay. I'm interested. I'm interested to hear thoughts on the difference between admonishment and persecution. Admonishment and persecution? Admonishment and persecution. And another well, which, might, which might end up related. Why is Alma's experience so different from the sons of Mosiah? Well, it's important to know that we don't know much about the sons of Mosiah. I think we can think that one of the great things about the unsealed portion of the Book of Mormon is that we're going to get an opportunity to see what those sons wrote on this amazing, amazing experience of them going, you know, can you imagine what it was like to, for them, not simply to go for two years among the Lamanites, but to spend all of those years. And I, as I thought about what that must have been like, it would be like you or me saying, let's go and try to convert the people of ISIS. Uh, any volunteers? I mean, it was, it was a, a really frightening thing for them to go. I think what happened to all of them, and it's really interesting to look at the difference between what happens to Alma and the sons of Mosiah and what happens repeatedly to those numbskulls, Laman and Lemuel. Angels keep appearing to them, shaking them, graciously appearing to them, and it just doesn't take any effect whatsoever. So these, we see that they are all ready. Because it's interesting, the difference between Paul and Alma is that Paul thought that what he was doing was pleasing to God and was a blessing to the church. Alma and the sons of Moniah know that they're up to no good. They're doing it secretly. And I think there are people, I think sometimes we want to see in the current uh, crisis of faith, we want to put all of the people who are having a crisis of faith into enemies of the church or rebellious or uh, whatever. There are so many that I know and that you know who aren't with us on Sundays because we've broken trust with them. Their trust has been broken with the church. They're not out to hurt us or to undermine the church. Many of them want to be there. I, as I talk to some of them, they're, they long to come back and sit in our congregations and sing the, the hymns. They want to be part of our fellowship. 
but I think we have done things which have driven them away. And I think we need to be the angels that go to them and say, we're sorry. And how can we help? And how can we persuade you that this sometimes broken church is for all broken people, including us? I don't know if that helps or not. That's, uh, Bob, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, one more question. Uh, we won't be able to cover everything, but uh, Alma turned from self-serving to concern and love for all. Can you say more about this turn? It's exactly what I was trying to say about King Benjamin. Uh, King Benjamin says that when we make the covenant of baptism, which we, we renew each week, in order to make that covenant valid from day to day, he says, to retain a remission of your sins, which we commit every day, to retain it from day to day, we have to serve others. I love Mother Teresa. She says, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. And to whom do we do it? She says, to all of those people who are Jesus in disguise. Jesus in disguise all around us, and we are called to serve. That is part of what that baptismal covenant is, and that is to mourn with those who mourn. Remember that what, uh, what Alma is saying, the waters of baptism, to mourn with those that mourn, and to weep with those that weep, and stand as witness of God at all times, in all places, and all things. That's what we should be doing, including to those who have lapsed from our fellowship. Can we come back? Okay. Why, Bob, why don't, you, why don't you go continue now? Pardon? Pick up, uh, continue okay. now. So, yes. there are many ways, it's way great segueing from that. That was a great question. There are many ways in which we currently have opportunities to act as angels. We all can know, we all know those. And we will increasingly have those opportunities in the world, which is affected by this virus and by global warming. Oh my heavens, we have no idea. And by warfare and displacement and poverty. I know all of you have many ways in which you play the role of angels. But if you're looking for one more, let me suggest to you one that will give you joy and make an enormous difference in the church and in the world. For the past 12 years, a group of us associated with the Bountiful Children's Foundation have been working to address moderate and severe acute malnutrition among Latter-day Saints and other children in the developing world. We focus on the first thousand days, which are the most critical in terms of physical and cognitive development. Although we're operating in over 200 congregations in 18 countries, we're still reaching less than 10% of the Latter-day Saint children suffering from serious levels of malnutrition. Currently, we're working with the church to help, to help feed more, but we could also use your help. As I've worked among these children for the past decade in the Philippines and Guatemala and the South Pacific and Peru and Colombia and elsewhere, I've been persuaded that if anyone qualifies as the least of God's children, 
it is certainly these precious little ones. A year ago, my wife, Gloria, and I were in Madagascar on behalf of the Bountiful Children's Foundation. Madagascar is one of the poorest countries in the world. As we screen children in four areas, we weigh them, we measure them, we uh, take their height and their age, and we can tell immediately if they fit into the lower 2% of malnourished people uh, or, or people in the world. The lowest rate of malnutrition we found in Madagascar was 55%. The highest was 90%. For $100, Bountiful Children's Foundation can provide the nutritional supplements for a child for an entire year. If you want to be an angel to these children, either contact me or Google bountifulchildren.org. Over my shoulder is French Schwartz painting of Christ in Gethsemane. As I look at it each day, I am struck both by the deep sorrow enveloping Christ and the tender compassion and, and consolation of the angel who comforts him with loving arms and sheltering wings. Even though I am not such an angel, I would like to be like one. This painting reminds us that we should try to see everyone as Jesus, including not only the lost and least among us, but also our fellow saints, including those who have left the church. And at this difficult time for the church, we should also remember the apostles and the prophets who, although at times may make mistakes, I'm convinced they labor with love to lead us. Christ's broken heart for us should lead us to break our hearts for anyone who through choice or circumstance feels bereft of love. We don't often think of it, but I see the ancient as well as the modern prophets calling us to weep for Christ and to weep with him, to comfort him in his sorrow over our sins and the sins of the world, his sorrow over the brokenness of the world and over our brokenness. Just as our heavenly parents and their son weep with and for us, so we should weep with and for them, easing and lifting their burdens by surrendering our sins and serving others. In the Midrash, this wonderful collection of imaginative riffs, as it were, on the scripture. The rabbis changed the scripture, comfort ye, me, oh, comfort ye, O my people, to comfort, having God to say, comfort me, O my people. We sometimes think of our heavenly parents as these powerful people with no cares in the world, and their son as having moved on from the great work of salvation. But of course, they suffer, as Enoch was so astonished to discover. As we need their comfort, they need ours. At this troubling, troubled and troubling time, when we are desecrating and destroying the beautiful world they gifted to our first parents and to all the generations after, when so many of their children 
our brothers and sisters are sick and suffering and dying when so many are displaced from their families and their homes and their countries and are bereft of hope. I believe the scriptures call us to encircle and comfort them. As the Nephites said of the Lamanites, our beloved brothers and sisters of all faiths, and even those of no faith, he calls us to encircle them with love as this angel circles and comforts Christ. As Francisco Goldman says, the great metaphor at the heart of the gospel according to St. Matthew is that those who suffer and those who show love for those who suffer are joined through suffering and grace to Jesus Christ. That, I believe, is the central message of the Book of Mormon. As we struggle to find our way, I hope that is also our fervent hope and prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we think about angels, let us listen to our closing song, The Dream of Flight performed by the City of Angels Chorale. Thank you again. Wow, uh, thank you. Thank you, Brother Reese. Thank you to the musicians and all who participated today. As a reminder, this session has been recorded and both an audio and video version will be posted later today. Um, look for that by all the ways that you receive information from dialogue. Uh, our closing prayer benediction will be offered by Matthew Bowman, who is a, the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies and Associate Professor of History and Religion at Claremont Graduate University and a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Our Heavenly Father, um, we thank Thee for this opportunity to gather together on this day of rest, um, to worship together, um, and to feel the bonds of community. We're blessed also to hear from Bob Reese, um, whose message of love and grace and mutuality um, is particularly essential at this time of great trauma. And we thank him and we thank you for the inspiration that we have received today to, especially in this time, to be the hands that lift those that hang down, um, to be those who can encircle others with thy grace and thy love. And we ask thee for inspiration and for grace as we seek to extend our arms and to bring in those who need to feel thy love and thy support. And we say these things in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.